0: I want to give you, to start off, some reasons for reading The Federalists, um, uh, some examples of the, the bona fides of The Federalists, if you will. What, um, why should anyone pay attention to this uh, book, or what standing does this, uh, this book have? And we'll start with the, the great giver of bona fides to anything, George Washington. During the ratification debates, George Washington uh, became familiar with this project of the Federalist Papers. Uh, James Madison took care to make sure that Washington had seen it. Alexander Hamilton sent him uh, copies and here is something that uh, Washington said contemporaneously as the Federalist Papers were coming out after he had read them himself and he shared them with others uh, as well, did Washington. This is George Washington. When the transient circumstances and fugitive performances which attended this crisis shall have disappeared That work, the Federalist, will merit the notice of posterity because in it are candidly and ably discussed the principles of freedom and the topics of government which will always be interesting to mankind so long as they shall be connected in civil society. Uh, That's Washington in a letter to Hamilton, August 28, 1788. Jefferson, also contemporaneously, Jefferson, the good friend of uh, James Madison, um, Jefferson typically being, um, uh, well, not, not, not qualifying his judgments at all here. Jefferson wrote, quote, that's the best commentary on the principles of government which ever was written. That's Jefferson um, in a letter to Madison, November 18th, 1788. So there are two founding statesmen who read the Federalist when they came out and who regarded the work of the Federalist as um, classic, enduring, um, or uh, um, um, better than anything that had come before on the subject of of government. Later, uh, three and a half decades later or so, when Thomas Jefferson was involved with James Madison in founding the University of Virginia, this is 1825 or so, just a year before Jefferson's death, And as a founder, one of the great things he did was to found the University of Virginia. He wrote to Madison again. They were communicating with one another about what what should be the curriculum uh, that we offer at the University of Virginia. And here's something that Jefferson wrote to Madison then, 1825. He says, the Federalist is second only to the Declaration of Independence as one of the best guides, and here's the full quote, to the distinctive principles of the United States, it's an authority to which appeal is habitually made by all and rarely declined or denied by any as evidence of the general opinion of those who framed and of those who accepted the Constitution of the United States on questions as to its genuine meaning. And that's Jefferson to uh, to Madison. Um, I have the date here somewhere, but uh, it doesn't leap out to my eyes. It's in 1825. And therefore Jefferson recommends the Declaration of Independence, the Federalist Papers, Washington's Farewell Address as key readings in the curriculum uh, at the University of Virginia uh, for teaching future American statesmen. So there are there are two um, um, contemporary statesmen, founders, Uh, who were quite familiar with the Federalists and who not only immediately when the Federalists came out, but in Jefferson's case, even decades later, regarded it as uh, um, a work that um, articulated the uh, meaning of the Constitution and the principles of government better than anything uh, else that they uh, could recommend. In the 20th century, uh, here are some uh, scholars who... um, scholars of the Federalist, who have a similar regard for it. One of them is the original editor of the text we're using here, Clinton Rossiter. And here's what Rossiter wrote about the Federalist. It's the most important work in political science that has ever been written or is likely ever to be written, doesn't hold up great hope for the future, in the United States. It is indeed the one product of the American mind that is rightly counted among the classics of political theory. It would not be stretching the truth more than a few inches to say that The Federalist stands third only to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution (coughs) among the sacred writings of American political history." That's Clinton Rossiter, the editor of the text we're using here. Um, There are many different texts of The Federalist. There are reasons for choosing this one for our sessions, and I'll, I'll get into those in a minute. But another very good, uh, the two most popular, widely used editions of The Federalist uh, in the country for the last few decades are this one by Clinton Rossiter, uh, re-edited by Charles Kessler, and another one by Jacob Cook. Some of you who have studied The Federalist uh, may have used The Cook Edition. Is there anyone here who is familiar with it? Down there. The, the Cook Edition, Jacob Cook, C-O-O-K-E, is worth having if you, be, if you become a lover of The Federalist. Uh, it It has these different features that um, uh, make it a nice complement to to this text, and that is that Rossiter's um, Federalist is taken from what's called the McLean editions of the Federalist, and that is the Federalist was gathered together into books, into two volumes, um, when it was published, and I'll explain how that worked out. The Rossiter edition is taken from those... McLean editions of The Federalist. And the Cook edition is taken from the first newspaper appearance of The Federalist in New York. And in the process of publishing, there are naturally some little differences that arise uh, there. The one thing that you get in the McLean edition that you don't get in in this one, which is, I think, a a good feature, is that because McLean takes his um, Federalist papers, uh, excuse me, because uh, um, Cook takes his Federalist Papers from the newspapers, at the head of each of the Federalist Papers in the, in the Cook edition, it says, to the people of New York, and it gives you a date. And so that reminds you, Federalist Paper after Federalist Paper, of how these things were actually appearing um, uh, to the public at the time. The other one advantage that the Cook edition has, uh, if you're growing old as I am, is the pages are larger, the print is bigger, the spacing is is greater, and the margins are big enough to write in. So, if you're inclined in those directions, um, that's a nice edition uh, to have. And again, these are, those are the two most uh, widely used um, editions. What Cook says... About the Federalist, Jacob Cook is the United States has produced three historic documents of major importance the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Federalist. So there, there, there's other testimony that one could get from uh, statesmen or scholars about the, uh, the worth or the significance or the standing of the Federalist Papers in the whole history of political thought and in, in the history of American politics and political thought, but those will give you. Um, Uh, Some reasons to say, well, uh, these people aren't just foisting the Federalist Papers on us. It didn't just get here by accident. Um, There are reasons for taking it seriously. It's also, uh, I think, worth noting that the 18th century testimony that uh, I've just quoted is from a couple of statesmen. And the 20th century testimony is from a couple of scholars, and you could add to that testimony. Um, The statesmen in the 1780s, um, were, uh, James Madison is one of the best examples. John Adams and James Madison perhaps uh, stand out in this way, but the other found Jefferson, too. The statesmen in the uh, 18th century were generally scholars. You couldn't say that Washington himself was a scholar, but it was very common for uh, the statesmen then to be scholars. And um, whereas in the 20th century you don't find, as a general rule, um, First of all, you don't find statesmen, uh, those are rare things. Um, but you don't find, you could say, politicians in general who are um, as steeped in study of, uh, of uh, political thought, American political thought, American political writings, um, as were the uh, framers. And um, and so you find uh, that the Federalist Papers has really come back into, and has been brought back into, the curricula of our universities and the curricula of, of some, some of our high schools. There are some states, maybe one of you is from one, uh, that require uh, the use of the Federalist uh, in high school instruction. Are there any of you from states who, who have that? I, yeah, which, which state is that? Massachusetts. Massachusetts? I thought there's one down south did it too, but maybe, maybe the word hasn't got out. Um, but so in, in the 20th century, and it really it really starts after um, a uh, one of a very influential historian in the 20th century, Charles Beard. Charles Beard is almost single-handedly responsible for reintroducing the Federalist to uh, um, prominence in uh, instruction in colleges and high schools in the 20th century. He wrote a book called the, "An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution," and that book um, relied heavily on a profound misunderstanding of Federalist Number 10, uh, which then uh, became the established view of of the Federalist and Federalist Number 10 and Madisonian political theory for decades in in American teaching. But Beard made the Federalist and and Madison and Federalist 10 uh, once again uh, very prominent in the study of the American Constitution and American politics Later in the 20th century, a couple of scholars, Douglas Adair has already been mentioned as one and historian, Martin Diamond is another one, continued this tradition of um, teaching the Federalist at the graduate level and at the college level. And as a result of this scholarship over more than half a century in the 20th century, um, the Federalist Papers has uh, come around to be very familiar to students of American Politics, whereas uh, you don't you don't find it as a, a standard item of study necessarily for a lot of the 19th century or late 19th century. I will mention not that, but I don't. I, I fear to discredit the Federalists, but it's one of the works that that Newt Gingrich, uh, in, in his more ambitious moments, thought to recommend to all the, his fellow congressmen as part of uh, revolutionizing Congress. But he got voted out of office pretty quickly after that. I don't know whether it's because they, they didn't want to read The Federalist or maybe it was just his politics. Okay, what I want to do is um, equip you to overcome the fear that I think often uh, overcomes us when we, when we approach a text like this. Uh, this text is not as daunting as the notes on the convention. It's more like a book that we're familiar with. But there are a lot of pages here. There are a lot of words. It's written in 18th century uh, American English that can be hard to penetrate. And once you get into it, there's so much detail that um, you often wonder where you are when you're reading. Uh, or are you just lost again, aside from the fact that you're looking up unfamiliar terms and so on? So I want to just get you, to start off our conversation, get you familiar with this particular edition of The Federalist. I again say this is, you could say, the standard edition of The Federalist used in the schools. This and the Jacob Cook edition, but this more frequently than Cook. And and this particular edition has some features that uh, are helpful and that uh, can help you be a good reader of it on your own, which is really what we want to accomplish here to help to make you better readers, independent thinkers on your own about these matters. So let's look at this text and see what features it has that can help us um, become better readers of the Federalist. Charles Kessler, whom you're going to meet at the end of the week if you haven't already, he's going to be in Washington and he's talking to you about all kinds of other things. But he has, uh, he's the editor of the, the new edition of uh, the Rossiter Federalist. Kessler has an introductory essay to this particular edition, it's very good. It's like a uh, well-crafted lecture in itself, and so when you have time, or if you haven't already, that's one place to look uh, to find um, some things out about the the Federalists that I probably won't cover in here, and you may not know on your own. So it's got a good uh, introductory essay by Charles Kessler, and that's pages Roman numeral seven through Roman numeral 31. And one feature of that introduction, which you can, uh, if you fold, if you do happen to uh, fold over your pages or mark in some other way, on page Roman numeral 16. Now, this again, this is in the the new edition, and I, I had the impression that a couple or few of you did not have this edition, so your pages will be a little different. But in the um, in the New Testament that we're using in here, um, Roman numeral 16. Um, the editor offers uh, his own outline of The Federalist, and it's reliable. You can, you can count on that, and I'm going to refer to that a few times in the, just in the next few minutes, to help you get a sense of the shape, the structure of the whole book. And there is one. And, and if you start reading it uh, without looking for that, you could very easily c- conclude that there isn't one, because you get immersed in details that uh, um, can be overwhelming. So there's a good introduction, and part of that introduction is this this outline that I think is one helpful um, ingredient here. On page Roman numeral 37, there's a note on this edition, and it tells you a couple of things uh, that um, are also helpful. It says there's a table of contents. All right. This is supplied by your editor, not by Publius. And so um, starting on page three, you've got brief summaries of each of the Federalist papers. So that's one place you can glance at and say, What's, what are they writing about here, what are they writing about there? Well, there's a quick overview of the whole 85 papers there um, in a table of contents. Your note on the, this edition also tells you that there is text in boldface. This was also not supplied for you by... Publius, and this is not in any other edition. It's not even in the earlier uh, Rossiter editions. So Charles Kessler, in re-editing this, decided, well, there are some some difficult terms in here or some terms that might not be familiar to people. I'm going to put some of them in boldface, and I'm going to add then, at the end of the uh, text, starting on our page 569, um, I'm going to add... um, explanations of these terms in bold. And so as you go through and you read and you occasionally uh, will run across one of those uh, emboldened terms, there they are in the back uh, in that set of notes starting on page 569. Sometimes they are just explaining the 18th century usage that would not be necessarily familiar to us, such as the first entry, which is the word candor. Candor and and candid are are terms that uh, appear fairly frequently in in the Federalist Papers, and they do mean something that's a little different from what we ordinarily mean. And so Kessler explains that a little bit, and you can look at that. The same is true with some other terms. The next entry in those um, uh, bold notes is an entry having to do with the pseudonym, the nom de plume of the authors of the Federalist Papers, Publius. And we will certainly talk about that. Why did they choose this name? What significance did it have? Uh, Kessler explains that to you or explains some of that to you there. I have some uh, other things I want to add about that uh, if it happens to come up in conversation. But there Kessler explains to you why did Alexander Hamilton, and it was Hamilton, why did he choose the name Publius as the um, nom de plume that ran uh, for all of the Federalist papers. Kessler gives you some uh, sense of that. Something that's in this edition that is not in the Cook edition, not in any other edition of The Federalist that I know of, is on page 25, and we can learn a few things from this, too. This is Hamilton's preface to the first volume of The Federalist. Now, again, the first Federalist paper is published on August—excuse me, October 27, 1787, and Hamilton um, conscripts James Madison and John Jay to join him in this project, and they start cranking out newspaper essays, as you see, very substantial newspaper essays, at the rate of about two or three a week, and they continue for several months. After they had written some 70 of these, they decided to start to issue them as a book, as, in fact, a book in two volumes, and they Um, selected the first 36 Federalist Papers as volume one. So um, well after they had written um, 60-some Federalist Papers, they decided to start publishing it as a volume. And again, if you think of the ratification debates going on and the significance of this, um, or think of those debates going on, it gives you some idea of the significance of this. That is, these weren't just going to be newspaper essays anymore. Uh, you know that when you get newspapers, typically you throw them away. When you get books, you typically keep them on your shelves. This is already an indication that they expect this to be of more enduring significance. It also made it much easier to use for those who are going to be using them in the ratification debates in the conventions, especially in New York and especially in Virginia. So there's that. The, in in um, March seventeenth, 1788, Hamilton writes a preface to this first collection of the Federalist Papers, volume one of the Federalist Papers, which is going to be uh, Papers 1 through 36. And we learn a few things from uh, this preface that can help us understand the Federalist Papers and help us uh, us read them. We learn, for example, about eight lines into the preface. um, This, a desire to throw full light upon uh, such an interesting subject has led in a great measure unavoidably to a more copious discussion than was at first intended. So Hamilton launched this project, and as they got going and started writing these papers, things happened that made him and Madison uh, conclude that they needed to go into the subject uh, in greater depth. There was not, we have reason to think that the original plan of writing The Federalist might have been to, to write maybe 20 or 30 essays. But there are 85 of them. So sometime along the line, and we don't know when, we have very few records about, about the actual collaboration of Hamilton and Madison on this. And we don't have any record of this. But sometime along the line, they decided we're going to issue them as volumes. And, um, and sometime along the line, they decided... We need to go into more depth, and you'll see where that happens in the Federalist Papers. In fact, it happens basically with Federalist 37. You can see there that they're already conscious, they're already conscious, and you can, they prove that they're already conscious that they're going to be going into more depth as late as the end of Federalist 36. So, a more copious discussion was required than we first expected or intended, and um, some students might regret that. That they concluded that, and it's true that among the anti-Federals back then, and I don't have the quote right here, but but there there were replies. Of course, to these Federalist papers, and one of them was, you know, you know, will Publius never stop? You know, will, you know, he just keeps going on and on. Um, he mentions we decided to divide it into two volumes, so they already know that when he in March seventeenth, they already know this is volume one, and volume two is going to be coming out, and we'll we'll see how that works out. Um, He also mentions in the second paragraph there, he's he's conscious that, in a way, what kind of book this is. This is a book that's written as a series of newspaper essays, it's a book that is written over time, and it's a book that's written in part in response to things that are happening after the book began. And you can prove that by reading some of the Federalist Papers, and you can see them reacting to things that happened after the Federalist Papers began. And so he says, in the second paragraph, "The particular circumstances and you know a little bit about those circumstances there's this big ratification debate going on, and these things are being written over, you know eight months." The particular circumstances under which these papers have been written have rendered it impracticable to avoid violations of method and repetitions of ideas which cannot but displease a critical reader. The latter defect has even been intentionally indulged in order the better to impress particular arguments which were most material to the general scope of the reasoning." So we know that we repeat ourselves sometimes in these Federalist Papers, and we know that those who are looking for uh, literary uh, perfection, uh, abstractly (laughs) considered, um, uh, will recognize these as violations of method. But we are looking not for mere literary perfection. We're looking for political perfection, if you want to uh, put it that way. Um, We are being guided by the the, the political requirements that these essays are being written to meet. And um, we're not going to um, uh, try to, um, we're not going to place literature over politics, you could say. Okay, so those are some of the, uh, you you can see for yourself the index in the back. The one other thing I'll mention about what your editor does, uh, which is helpful, is he provides some documents in the back so again you've got the Declaration of Independence uh, you've got the Constitution excuse me you've got the Declaration you've got the Articles of Confederation and you've got the Constitution this begins on page 528 that's where the Declaration is again just to remind you Publius didn't put that in there I, mean, I know my students often ask me they'll say well how did you know how did Publius uh, how did he manage to uh, collate the Constitution uh, with the Federalist Papers in these page numbers I said well that was Kessler okay. So, but but to look at the the um, the Constitution as it is in these in this edition, there's another helpful thing here, and it, it, there are any number of ways you now know to get into the Constitution. For example, through the Constitutional Convention. I mean, to to go into different clauses of the Constitution and compare how it developed in the Constitutional Convention is something now you're a little more equipped to do, and that can really show. Um, some interesting background to how certain clauses came about, such as the Fugitive Slave Clause, for example. Here's one other way, and that is, uh, your editor has put in the margins of the Constitution in here, those page numbers in this edition of the Federalist Papers where those clauses are discussed. So that's another way that you can you can find. Well, what did Publius say about uh, like the, the 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 veto power of the president or the term of office for the House of Representatives and so on? And you have line numbers. Um, Uh, page numbers listed in the margins of of the Constitution in here. Okay, Um, Federalist number 1 begins on page 27, just to make things as absolutely clear as possible, and Federalist number 85 ends on page 527. Now, so there's there's Publius for you. It's a lot. It's a lot of Publius. What I want to do is try to show you how those papers are structured from Federalist number one through Federalist 85 in a plan that Publius himself um, announces to us in Federalist number one. And so a striking thing about this is that um, on October 27, 1787, Publius lays out a plan for writing the Federalist Papers. We know, because you've just looked at Hamilton's preface written several months later, March 1788, we know that Publius learned over several weeks or a few months that he was going to become more copious than he had at first intended. But he never abandons the plan that he lays down in Federalist Number 1. As you'll see in a moment, he just expands it imaginatively um, in a certain section of the Federalist. So, Federalist Number 1, page 30 toward the end of that uh, Federalist essay, about th- three paragraphs from the end, Publius says, I propose in a series of papers to discuss the following interesting particulars. And he lists six interesting particulars. Okay? So there they are in italics, and this is the plan that Publius is going to follow in the Federalist papers. He's going to follow it in a way that he didn't anticipate on October 27, 1787, but he is going to follow it, and what I want to do is to show you, um, you know, in the text, um, his own explicit announcements that he is following this plan. Now, again, keep in mind um, Kessler's um, useful and uh, very accessible outline that tells you something about Hamilton's plan, and it also adds some details Hamilton doesn't add, but let's also see for ourselves in the text itself, self, written by Publius, how he chooses explicitly to let his readers know that he's sticking with the plan that he announced in Federalist Number 1. Um, so. What are the six interesting particulars? Anybody can, uh, can read those for the, for the assembled uh, citizens of the United Ashbrook here? The utility of the union to your political prosperity. That's one. The insufficiency of the present confederation to preserve that union. Two. The necessity of a government at least equally energetic with the one proposed to the attainment of this object. Three. Three the conformity of the proposed Constitution to the true principles of Republican government. Four, put an asterisk on that one. Its analogy to your own state constitution. And lastly, the additional security which its adoption will afford to the preservation of that species of government, to liberty and to property. Okay, five and six. Thank you. So, six interesting particulars and let's see in the Federalist Papers where Hamilton takes them up. So, um, he's announced them in Federalist Number 1. Leap ahead to Federalist 15 at the beginning, page 100 in the, in the New Testament. You people who are dealing with the Old Testament, if you want to call out page numbers, uh, you can do that. Um, the beginning of Federalist Number 15... In the course of the preceding papers, I have endeavored, my fellow citizens, to place before you in a clear and convincing light the importance of the Union to your political safety and happiness. Next paragraph. In pursuance of the plan which I laid down, the point next in order is the insufficiency of the present Confederation to the preservation of the Union. So Federalists 1 through 14 deals with the first interesting particular. And Publius announces it to you right at the beginning of Federalist 15. Flip to the beginning of Federalist 23. And I do this because I know when I first read the Federalist Papers, uh, no one did that for me. And I spent many months lost in the Federalist Papers. Uh, Some people think I'm still lost in the Federalist Papers, but it's... uh, Uh, There you are. But I think these things can help you. Federalist uh, 23, it's on page 148, of the new and approved Orthodox edition. Page 148, the beginning of Federalist 23, he says, the necessity of a Constitution at least equally energetic with the one proposed to the preservation of the Union is the point at the examination of which we are now arrived. That's the third heading, right? So he's done the first heading. All right? Did the first heading 1 through 14, the second heading 15 through 22, the third heading starts in Federalist number 23. But then, you know, okay, where does he stop for that? Now, if you're just reading the Federalist papers for the first time, first of all, if you're reading for the first time and you get to this, you, you look at that and say, oh, is that what he was talking about before? Because, I mean, you know, he talked about a lot of things. This is an example of what, what Gordon was saying before in, in the, uh, um, about the Constitutional Convention. One thing to help yourselves read that convention is to remember that it's, it's, it's a committee meeting, and every discussion must arise from a motion. Now, you find that they get off on the craziest thing. Sometimes guys are, I'm quitting the union if you do this, you know, South Carolina, Georgia, you know. Or, I'm quitting the union if you do that, Sherman. And they go off on all kinds of philosophic things, uh, and you wonder what they're talking about, but they always get back to the motion that's on the floor, and they have a vote about it. And in the Federalist Papers, again, they're following this outline, but they get into metaphysical questions, philosophical questions, long historical discourses, as anyone can do who's following an outline. But they do stick with the outline uh, in a kind of way that a jazz musician sticks with the chord progressions. Federalist 36 at the end. Um, This is page 220 of... uh, the Orthodox edition, and um, at the end of Federalist 36, among other things, about eight lines from the end uh, of the last paragraph, Publius says, I equally flatter myself that a further and more critical investigation of the system will serve to recommend it. I just point that out to as one of the evidences that by that time, by the end of Federus 36, Hamilton Publius already knew that there was going to be a further and more critical investigation of the system they're discussing. The beginning of Federalist 37 is where they take up the fourth interesting particular. What is the fourth interesting particular? Anybody remember? the conformity of the proposed constitution to the true principles of republican government. Madison Publius, beginning of Federalist 37, in reviewing the defects of the existing confederation, showing that they cannot be supplied by a government of less energy than that before the public, go back and look at the headings of the interesting particular and notice that Madison is recalling uh, the language. Um, He says, he wants to take a more critical and thorough survey of the work of the convention. Here at the beginning of Federalist 37 begins um, a consideration, and you'll see, uh, if I can find the place where they do this explicitly, that this is where they take up particular number four. And this is where the Federalist Papers begins to get more copious considerably more copious. Um, If you look at the beginning of Federalist 39 on page 236, you see the last paper having concluded the observations which were meant to introduce a candid survey of the government, there's that word candid, blah, blah, the first question is whether the general form and aspect of the government be strictly Republican interesting particular number four. There's a wonderful and memorable uh, uh, passage that immediately follows that that uh, I find myself often quoting and teaching the Federalist Papers. Um, Why does um, interesting particular number four become the one that causes such a copious discussion as we'll see in a minute? It is evident, writes Madison Publius, no other form would be reconcilable with the genius of the American people, with the fundamental principles of the revolution, or with that honorable determination which animates every votary of freedom to rest all our political experiments on the capacity of mankind for self government. Um, one reason this passage is uh, worth paying some attention to is uh, you may recall from the Declaration of Independence um, some lines, and maybe I'll. They're worth glancing at because it's a subject that um, we we don't really have time to discuss here. We haven't had much time to talk about it, and it's very important. Um, In the beginning famous passage of the Declaration, which is on page 528 of uh, of this edition, uh, these revolutionaries write, Jefferson writes, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends that he's expressed, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles, it's worth underlining, and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. That part of the thinking of the Declaration of Independence deserves some reflection, because uh, if you read Federalist Number 39, you hear Publius Madison saying, um, why is it that we have to consider whether the general form of this government is strictly Republican? No other form would be reconcilable with the genius of the people of America. And then you look at your Constitution, and you see that the Constitution is, guarantees to every state in the Union a Republican form of government. And yet in the Declaration of Independence, which is expressing most memorably the right of the people to consent to uh, their own government, the right of the people to overthrow their government, it says that the people have a right to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles, and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. And the question arises, any principles, any form, is the declaration or is Locke, for example, asserting that uh, the people have a right to institute government on any principles or that they have a right to establish government in any form? And that requires a lot of thinking. To begin that thinking, you, I think, can consider a couple of things. One, uh, Locke and and the American revolutionaries would immediately say, no, no people has a right to establish government on tyrannical principles, for example. So this is where you could say the laws of nature and of nature's God come in. Um, Yes, it's the people who have this sovereign right to constitute government, but the people have no right to do what is wrong, as Lincoln will later say. That The right of the people is derived from the laws of nature, and any government that they have a right to produce is going to have to be a government that conforms to the law of nature in some way or other. In other words, it can't be a tyrannical government. That's as to principles. As to form, it gets a little more ticklish because oh, does anybody have any sense of John Locke? Maybe you read the preface on your own. What does Locke say about forms of government um, and, and uh, the, the, the right of the people to consent to different forms of government? Anybody have any notions? Well, for example, does Locke in 1689, in the preface to the um, Second Treatise, does Locke say um, only a republican government will do for the people of England? No? What does he say? Yes. So Locke, Locke's second treatise is written, as he says, among other things, to, to legitimize the new king of England. He's just saying, Locke is just saying, but this is not a king by divine right. This is a king who holds his title according to the consent of the governed. Read Locke's preface, just the first paragraph of it, which is the only title to legitimate government that there is. Now, but for the Americans... Certainly, you see at the beginning of Federalist thirty-nine here, um, the genius of the American people, and that's another word I don't know if Kessler emboldens it anywhere. But the genius of the American people does not mean their astonishing SAT scores. What 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 does that mean uh, then when he refers to the genius of the American people there? Their inherent qualities. Yes. Who says that? Their inherent qualities is very good. Their distinguishing characteristics. The American people are the kind of people uh, who would never accept any other form of government than a Republican form of government. So that's one thing that Publius and, and the revolutionaries, for that sake, for that matter, were telling us. Um, the kind of government that is best for any given people depends in some respects on what the genius of that people is. And that's something we can bring to bear in contemporary times in recognizing how prudence needs to take into account fundamental uh, realities like this. Well, what are the traditions of this people? What experience do they have uh, in self-government? In determining what the best form of government is for any particular people, you have to take into account the genius of that people. In the case of the Americans, Madison is saying in 1787-88, um, no other form of government but the Republican would do for the American people. But not only that, it's not just um, the, the kind of people that the Americans are, but the principles, says Madison in Federalist 39, no other form of government would be compatible with the fundamental principles of the revolution. So one thing that happens in the American Revolution and the American founding is, is I think, is this, that they think through Locke's arguments and, and they conclude, take those arguments, I think, to their ultimately to their logical conclusion, which is that if you if you follow out Locke's thinking, you are going to end up with republican government. That is, government not just government that's based not just a monarchy that's based on the consent of the governed, but on government of the people, by the people, for the people, republican government. So, that passage is sort of worth worth noting for those. Those kind of reasons, but um, so there you have in Federalist thirty-six and or excuse me thirty-seven and Federalist thirty-nine uh, expressions by Publius that something new is now happening in uh, in the Federalist Papers. At the end of Federalist thirty-six, he says a further and more critical investigation is warranted. At the beginning, that's that's Hamilton. At the beginning of Federalist thirty-seven, Madison Publius says uh, a more critical and thorough survey of the work of the convention is necessary. In Hamilton's preface to volume two, you see him saying, "Uh, you know, when we started this, we didn't realize, uh, we didn't intend uh, the more copious examination that we discovered was necessary eventually. And that more copious consideration begins with Federalist number 37, which happens to be the first Federalist of volume two, when volume two eventually comes out. And so, let's just leap ahead to Federalist 85 for a moment. And you can see, especially when you get here, why one might get a little lost even following the outline that Publius gives us. It's not until you get to Federalist 85, the last. imagine Hamilton, his tongue is hanging out, his, his hand is cramped, he's writing all this with a quill pen, and he gets to Federalist 85, and he says according to the formal division of the subject of these papers announced in my first number, you're still with me folks, still with me, says, you know, I, I have a plan. There would appear to still remain for discussion two points. The analogy of a proposed government to your state constitution and the additional security which is adoption will afford to Republican government to liberty and property. But I'm so damn tired, I'm going to stop here. <laughs> so he, uh, he says, yeah, um, we hadn't gotten to those officially. And then he tells us, really, we've covered those in so many different ways informally in the preceding papers that... Um, I'm just going to write one paragraph about each one of them right here, and wrap it up. Nonetheless, he does keep to the formal outline that he sets out in in uh, in Federalist Number One. It's just that this more copious consideration takes Federalist Papers 37 through 84, and that is all that all falls under the heading of. Republican government. Does this Constitution conform to the strict principles of Republican government? That's a lot of Federalist Papers. There's a lot more structure within those Federalist Papers. But that's item number four. Um, that's the more copious discussion, and it begins in Federalist 37. And here's where your Federalist, uh, your, your uh, Kessler outline can become handy to you. You can go back and glance at that on page Roman numeral 16. Because in that more copious discussion, um, which we're going to spend uh, our third session on mainly, so we're really we're ripping through these uh, rapidly, there's a helpful structure, and again, uh, even this structure is, is a, a general one, because when you, if you really get to know the Federalists, you'll find that they are even structured within Federalists 37 to 40 are a kind of a package. Federalists 41 through 51 are a kind of a package. Uh, even though it's not announced in a certain way. But look at your outline there and um, uh, the Kessler outline for volume two, and, uh, and you see the structure of it. Federalist 37 through 40, a kind of um, uh, unit. He has Federalists 41 through 46 as unit, and that's true, but I think you could add even uh, 47 through 51 to that. 47 through 84, says Kessler, the particular structure of the government and the distribution of its massive power. Federalists 47 through 51, and Lucas is going to be considering these um, in the next session. He's going to concentrate on these papers, 47 through 51, and then look at how the structure of the Federalist Papers, this more copious discussion, how it conforms to the structure of the Constitution itself. Here, this is really what ends up. I say this is what makes this book a classic. Although in a minute, I'm going to give you some reasons for uh, some other reasons for that. That is that the, the most what is the most famous Federalist paper? Yeah. All right, and and deservedly so. Um, nonetheless, it's this more thorough and critical analysis, this more copious discussion of the Constitution, that really makes the Federalist Papers. Um, what Washington and, and Jefferson said that it was. That is the most authoritative commentary on the meaning of the Constitution to those who framed it that we have. And so look what it does. It starts off, yes, separation of powers, but then House of Representatives, 52 through 58, regulation of elections, 59 through 61, Senate, 62 through 66, Executive, 67 through 77, Judiciary, 78 through 83. I think uh, a good way to think of the the way that Publius works through the Constitution, gives us more critical examination of the Constitution, and a good way to think of the Constitution itself is to look at the relationship of those different branches of the government and look at how, as Lucas was pointing out today, how the House of Representatives is that branch of government that is closest to the people, it is most answerable to the people, and the structure of government moves gradually further away from the people, and you could say up from the immediate um, responsiveness to the people, up to the Supreme Court. You move from the House to the Senate, the Senate is more indirectly elected by the people, they have longer terms, they are intended, as you'll see, especially in Federalist Number 63, the Senate is constituted so to be able to resist sudden whims of the people and to give a more cool and deliberate sense to the judgments of Congress you move to the president who again is indirectly elected by the people who has a longer term of office than, than the members of the house and you move from the president to the supreme court which is furthest removed from the people in terms of its mode of appointment and has a term of office that is good behavior and is explicitly intended to be independent An independent judiciary is held by Publius and and the framers to be an essential ingredient if republican government is going to be good government. And so it is essential to the uh, the good functioning of the judiciary that it be independent of the people and independent of the other two branches and it's structured to be that way. And so the structure of the Federalist and the structure of the Constitution really moves that way from the broad base that is taken directly from the people It's like a pyramid which is gradually moved, further removed from the immediate recall uh, of of the people or the immediate election by the people, and it's moved in that direction in order, as Publius will say over and over, in order to obtain the cool and deliberate sense of the people in the judgments of the government, as much as that is possible. So that's the broad structure uh, of the Federalist Papers, and uh, as I say, if you keep that in mind, uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to go through um, uh, we're going to dip in and out of the Federalist to look at some of the important um, um, reasoning that's in there. And if you keep that outline in mind, it'll keep you from getting completely uh, lost there. Yeah? I, I guess I have a structural question. Uh oh. As, as you read through them, and as you read most of the material coming up to this point, the author poses the question. Is that a reflection of the time? Whereas now, most argument, written argument is, I am going to propose not a question to be answered, but a proposition to be maintained. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to argue for the positive of it. Whereas most of these papers say, here's the question. I make some assertions, which is the common, what we view as the modern form of argument, and then by indirect evidence, by the negative, the Federalist papers go so about proving, proving or answering the question that they had asked them at the beginning of it. Is that, is that intentional? I, I'm, not sure that I, I'm not sure that I understand exactly how you're characterizing uh, the way that they argue. But let me try to respond, and you can tell me whether I get it right. Um, It's hard to get the the sequence in our own conversation. It's hard to get the sequence exactly right in how to uh, proceed in these seminars. Um, Originally, our session on the Constitution that Lucas just did, we had it scheduled later. But the reason we wanted to put that right now is that in the logic of things, you've had the Constitutional Convention. The Constitution didn't exist before that. By September 17th, you've got this new thing that no one had ever imagined before that. And you saw the, the problems that arose in the Convention when they were working through that. So now you've got this new document that comes out. And we uh, have chosen to at least look at that document itself as the American people looked at that document itself for the first time following September 17th. Immediately, immediately, newspaper articles and pamphlets and public speeches started to be made denouncing it. When did uh, uh, Lansing and Yates leave the Constitutional Convention? July 5th, what did they do? They went back to New York and started agitating. They left in disgust. They said, I see what the, this compromise, they, they, they left after the Connecticut Compromise. They said, oh, I see, this is this is too national. They went back to New York, they started agitating. they wrote to Governor Clinton, they said, we couldn't participate anymore in that in that, in that convention. Uh, they're doing something there we think is beyond our lawful right to do, and we're going to devote ourselves to uh, um, opposing it. And one of those uh, fellows, Robert Yates, is the one who, we're going to talk about this during ratification, he's the one who is thought by scholars to be Brutus, the Anti-Federalist. Anti-Federalist attacks on the Constitution start immediately. And the Federalist Papers, as it says in Federalist Number no. 1, says, we are going to attempt to answer every objection that is being made to this Constitution. You already know from the Constitutional Convention that Mason and Jerry um, and Randolph, they had opposition, so much opposition to it, they couldn't sign it. As soon as they got out of the Convention, Mason wrote down his, um, uh, his objections and started circulating them all around the country. And they were widely read. They were published in newspapers. They were read in 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 in, 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 um, in the ratifying conventions. The Federalists. This is why. And so, um, there is some logic in in doing these sessions. Uh, you could say to doing the ratification session even before you do the Federalist, or somehow. So we I should. We should think of ourselves as trying to weave those together. Because, what's the situation? Newspaper essays and pamphlets and minority reports from, from the Pennsylvania minority, the anti-federalists, right over across the street over there, Minority report from Pennsylvania. all these things are being published, giving one reason after another why this constitution is disastrous. And they're, they're giving, you know, detailed, fundamental reasons: getting into you know, necessary and proper clause, general welfare clause, tyranny, you know. Um, the states are going to be abolished and all these things. So the Federalist Papers claims explicitly to want to answer every objection that is being brought against the Constitution. And in another reading that we probably don't have too much time for here, you could do this kind of reading where you can find in the Federalist Papers themselves specific evidence that Publius is responding to objections that appeared in newspapers after he wrote his earlier papers. um, the papers are intended to be responding to the most important objections made against the Constitution. And, and Publius Hamilton and Publius Madison know, before they even step out of the convention, they know what a lot of those are because they've been told. What's one of the big ones that we're going to deal with in our last session? Bill of rights. It doesn't have a Bill of Rights. They know that coming out, which reminds me of something I didn't mention. One reason to read Federalist 84... Is that uh, the famous subject of Federalist 84? Is that's the Federalist paper that most substantively takes up the question of why we don't need to have a Bill of Rights? Why, in fact, having a Bill of Rights would be a bad thing? That's a place to look for that. So that's an explanation of uh, um, what the Federalist, what Publius announces uh, his intention to be. His intention is we are going to answer every, every objection we possibly can. Okay? Um, I leave you to consider for yourselves Kessler's explanation of Publius, the synonym uh, Publius. Um, you know that these appeared in New York newspapers primarily, but they got circulated widely to newspapers in other states as well. You know that they got collected together in, uh, in two volumes and that they, had, uh, they were used in that way uh, as well, you know that Hamilton was the instigator of this project, and that uh, he, that John Jay, a fellow New Yorker, and James Madison joined him in writing these papers. There are 85 of them. Uh, Hamilton asked Governor Morris to join him in this project, and Governor Morris said, "I have to make a living." He asked another fellow, William Dewar, to join him in the project, and Mr. Dewar submitted a couple of papers, and Hamilton gave them C-minuses and sent them back. Um, James Madison is in New York. Why is James Madison in New York? You know, Why is James Madison the father of the Constitution? Little Jimmy. James Madison is one of the instigators of what comes to be the Annapolis Convention in September 1786. From that convention, as you can see in Federalist Number 40, from that convention comes a call for the Constitutional Convention. After the Annapolis Convention, James Madison sits down and starts studying all of the American state constitutions, the character of the American Confederacy or Confederation and he gets Jefferson to send him a bunch of books over from Paris, and he starts studying ancient and modern confederacies, and he's preparing himself like the scholar statesman he is for the big convention that's happening in Philadelphia. And that's when he writes his own personal notes called The Vices of the Political Systems of the United States, and in those notes you find, especially in section number 11, the last one of those notes, you find what becomes the most distinctive American contribution to political science that we know of. Madison does that, he goes to Philadelphia it's Madison that crafts the Virginia plan when Madison leaves Philadelphia and he takes those notes that you've labored through when he leaves Philadelphia, what does poor Jimmy do, poor tired little short black dressed Jimmy he goes to New York because that's where the Congress is meeting and he fights for three days, September 26th through 28th to get that Congress not to kill this Constitution right there, it was possible that this Constitution, it got out It got out of Philadelphia. It's possible this Constitution could have died in New York. Why? Uh, Lucas was reading this to you uh, earlier on. What was the um, authority under which the Constitutional Convention was operating? In this edition, you can see it quoted in Federalist 40, as I mentioned before. What were the procedures that they were bound by whatever authority they had to follow? Wait a second. Who's this? The convention had to bring it back to Congress, and only Congress could then send it to the people. Right, so this thing that Lucas was reading to you before, this, the resolution from Congress, under what authority were these people gathered in Philadelphia? Congress's authority. And what does Congress say in its resolution? Here's how you guys are going to proceed. You're going to have a convention in Philadelphia for the sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Federation and reporting to Congress and the several legislatures such alterations and provisions therein as shall when agreed to by Congress and confirmed by the states, blah, blah, blah. These things had to be sent back to Congress. That was the, those were the conditions under which they were operating in Philadelphia. And not only that, But this Constitution has to be agreed to by Congress and confirmed by the states before it can go on to become law. Madison goes back to New York. Richard Henry Lee, staunch anti-federalist, fellow Virginian, president of Congress. I think he was president at that time. And he says, he's he's just seen this thing. I don't know whether Madison got there before the Constitution or maybe he brought it with him here. But Madison is there in New York. He's a member of Congress. Congress has to be doing what they say they're going to do under this resolution. And Richard Henry Lee says, man, you guys did some sort of surprising things down there. I guess Congress needs to examine it clause by clause to determine whether we should pass it on to the states. Because after all, our agreement is required. And Jimmy says, um, that would be very bad. Why don't you just, I'll tell you what, why don't you just send it on to the states and don't say whether you approve it or not. And that's what happens. It turns out that Congress, Congress forwards the Constitution to the state legislatures and never says whether it approves it or not. Doesn't say anything about that. So James Madison is in New York, September 26th through 8th, doing that. And on September 28th, Congress says, OK, we're going to send it out to the states. How did I get on that? I can't remember. That's why Madison's in New York. So Hamilton gets his fellow New Yorker finally John Jay, you'll join me. And what happens to John Jay? gets sick. So you see him, he writes uh, Federalist 2, 3, 4, 5, gets sick. And he comes back right after Madison's going to leave and writes Federalist 64. So Hamilton needs some help, and he asks James Madison. And James Madison first appears in Federalist number 10, uh, and then he writes Federalist number 14, and then he writes that historic swath of essays from basically 37 with a couple of exceptions, through 63. Um, so Hamilton writes approximately 52 to 54 Federalist Papers. Jay writes five. Madison writes 26 or 28. There are a couple of few that uh, we're uncertain about as far as the authorship. And there's a lot of scholarship beginning in the second half of the 20th century about how do we identify the authors of the Federalists because it wasn't simply known. And Hamilton and Madison presented conflicting lists. I wrote that. I wrote that. Um, so there they are. That's the that's that's the um, that's the kind of book it is. That's the structure of it. Um, those are some basics. In the few minutes we have, which is we started eleven, we're going to twelve twenty, right? So we got eleven minutes. Now we're not going to go to twelve thirty. <laughs> we. Do, we are not going to, we are strict constructionists in here. Okay? Okay? We believe, as the Virginians say, we believe you have rats. And, uh, and we want to secure your rats and protect your rats for you. Um, so, no, we're going to be out of here in, in 10 minutes. And the one thing I want to do, and I think we can do in that time, you know, you've seen the structure, this is the basic thing. And now, in the next discussions we have with the Federalists, I think Lucas and I are going to be. Um, going into it now and leaving aside the structure and saying, look, look at Federalist 51. He's going to really concentrate on that, I hope, and I'm going to just concentrate on some of the particular arguments. One thing you don't want to miss if you're reading the Federalist. Somebody mentioned, the most famous Federalist is Federalist number 10. It is accidental that that became the most famous Federalist in a certain respect. That is, it's James James Beard. No, actually, he does cooking. It's Charles Beard uh, who makes... Federalist 10, famous uh, in the 20th century, as I say, by a profound and malicious misunderstanding of it. But um, he does make it famous, but it deserves to be famous. And and what what a 20th century scholar says about it is true, someone who understood it better than um, Charles Beard did. But but many different uh, 20th century scholars would say this of Federalist number 10, if I can uh, find it. The 10th Federalist paper ranks as perhaps the most significant contribution to the theory of government ever written by an American. Madison made a great and unique contribution to political theory in Federalist Number 10. If you're going to go to Athens for a day, if you go there for a day and come out and, and, you, and you missed the Acropolis, that's, that's just a mistake. You, know, you, you want to see that if you're going there for a day. If you're going to look at the Federalist papers for four and a half hours, spend a little time on federalist number ten and understand why that is the greatest contribution to american political theory um, the most distinctively american contribution to political theory uh, that we know of why you already know a little bit about why it starts in our discussions here with james madison's vices of the political systems of the united states go back and reread that especially reread the last Um, heading number 11 there, and there you see in its kernel the origins of this distinctive uh, understanding of Republican government that James Madison brought into the world. You've seen already on on June 6th in the Federal Convention that Madison repeats uh, these arguments, and you see them then refined and enlarged, so to speak, in Federalist number 10. Another source you should look at, and uh, it doesn't happen to be listed in our um, in our syllabus, but I want to call it to your attention because it's a very good source. Uh, on October 24th, 1787, you know, think of when that was. It's it's a little over a month after the convention. It's a few days before uh, Federalist Number One appears. Madison writes to Jefferson. Jefferson doesn't know what's going on over here. I mean, he knows there's this convention going on, but he doesn't know what's happened. Madison writes and, and reports to Jefferson what has occurred. Remember, secrecy. Nobody knew. There were some, people, there were some letters that went out to people and, but, and said general things, like Washington saying, oh, God, it's going badly. Uh, but nothing uh, uh, nothing uh, specific. October twenty fourth, 1787, Madison writes to Jefferson, and this particular letter is in your Kurland and Lerner, so to, to sort of give you some small consolation for carrying that astonishing book around with you in Philadelphia. Chapter 17, document 22 in Curlin Lerner contains a wonderful and large letter. And it's, it's Madison writing to Jefferson and his, his report. He says, look, I'm going to tell you what went on in that, in that convention. And he starts laying it out. And you will, you will see, because you've gone through the, the convention notes, you will see, oh, that's Madison, that's Madison. Madison says, we didn't get the negative meaning we did not, I, I lost. I thought there should that the national government should have been given the power to negative state laws, and without that, I think we may fail. So Madison is still looking back at his defeats in the, in the convention and saying, as I said in my vices, as I said on June 6, as I said in the Virginia plan, uh, I'm saying now to you in a private letter, we didn't get the negative, and I think that may be disaster because of that. And, and this is a long letter. And then Madison says, and here's some thinking on, on our system, That and he says, which I think if you, if I mistake not, if you pay close attention to what I'm going to tell you, Tommy, you will discover here the true principles of, of Republican government, and he gives him his Federalist 10 argument, his vice's argument, his June 6th argument. Not his argument, his analysis. And and what's the essence of that analysis? You're all a little bit familiar with it, or a lot. What's what? what are the ingredients of this uh, analysis that Madison uh, puts in his notes, number eleven from his Vices, or on June six, or in Federalist number ten? What are some of the ingredients of that uh, famous analysis that becomes the most distinctive American contribution to political science? Anybody? A faction. So he is. It, it's an analysis that begins by considering the problem of factions in Republican government. What kind of faction in particular? Majority faction. First thing to get in mind with, with, with Madison, he's looking at the state governments and, and the great vice, the radical vice that they have. What does he see? He says, you guys didn't quite, it's understandable, he says, but all you state governments, you, you constituted yourselves as if the great danger to us was still what? But George Third. So all of, your, all of your constitutions are written to make sure that the king doesn't tyrannize over us. In other words, weak executives. You probably, you know, or in Pennsylvania, no executive, so to speak. And as a result, you have, you have failed to understand a fundamental thing. When you have a monarchy, and the monarch is the sovereign, of course your prudent political science should try to discover ways to protect the people from whom? The sovereign. He's got all the power. What you have not grasped is that we have succeeded in a revolution of the sort that has never taken place in the history of the world. Because who is the sovereign here? The people. people. And it's where the sovereign power is that you have to look for the greatest danger. We don't have a king. The people are king, and what you have done, because I mean, in your good work in these state constitutions, they're all you know committed to the principles of the revolution and so on, but they have failed to understand the greatest danger to governments that are based on the consent of the governed and therefore on majority rule, and that is this: the greatest crisis that can happen to democratic government is when the majority goes bad, when the majority becomes tyrannical. Why is that the greatest crisis of of Democratic or Republican government? Because that government rightly recognizes the majority as the rightful rulers. And so Madison says, how can you find a Democratic solution or a Republican solution for the greatest crisis of Democratic or Republican government? And that's where the thinking of his vices begins. That's where he extends it in June 6 and Federalist 10. And in the two minutes we have, what are, well, let's say, what is the, the essential ingredient of Madison's solution to the problem majority faction? You can't control the, the faction itself because that you can't control the faction. of it. And how do you do that? No, but other people are saying extend the sphere, right? Enlarge the orbit, extend the sphere. But, but your first part of that analysis needs to be concentrated on. Madison's, Madison goes through this in Federalist 10 and in his Vices and June 6. You count, can't count on religion to make people good. You count, can't, can't count on people, people's own uh, concern for their own character to make them good. You can't can't count on the people being wise enough to recognize that their own personal good is inseparable from the public good. You can't count on that. You have to recognize the ordinary kind of interests and motives and passions that animate people. And we intend to be free. Where you are free, you are going to see people with different opinions, different interests. And in the past, he said, It has always been insisted that Republican government can only survive and thrive in a small place. And this is the fundamental mistake that all political thinkers have made up till this moment in September 1787, excuse me, 86, uh, when I, Jimmy Madison, am sitting in my study reading books. No one has recognized that the only way that you're going to make Republican government capable of being good government is to enlarge the orbit and allow for such a diversity of interests that it will become not impossible, but it will become much more difficult for a majority to combine in a tyrannical project. And in a nutshell, that's the unprecedented argument in Federalist Number 10, and you'll see that Hamilton in Federalist No. 9 toward the end of that paper, introduces this argument as the key ingredient of the improved science of politics that the Federalist uh, is going to represent. And today, I'll just say that Madison insists that the ultimate, that, that Republican government must depend ultimately on the people and on the virtue of the people and their capacity to govern themselves, on the one hand. And on the other hand, Republican government will only be good government if it is structured in such a way as to keep the people from acting foolishly.